Amen. Thank you, Drew and team, Angie, Aaron, Dina, glad to have you back. How's everybody doing, church? Good. A lot of sleepy, rainy people. Um, hey, grab your Bibles, if you will, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be there in just a few minutes. It's going to take us a minute to get there. Uh, but 2 Corinthians chapter 9, specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 15 together this morning. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. Uh, before we dive into God's Word together, each week we take an opportunity to pray together, all of us together, a time of family prayer is what we call it. And we want to have an opportunity this morning uh, to pray for some exciting things happening in the life of our church. If you've been at Double Oak Community Church in Chelsea any amount of time, you likely know uh, that we are a part of one church on two campuses. And here's what I mean by that. Several years ago, uh, we were birthed out of and started as a campus. We started meeting in 2018 in the elementary school uh, as a result of a, of a plant really through uh, Double Oak Community Church that's in Mount Laurel. So we are connected. Uh, we are still joined, not just in spirit, but also from a, from a governing standpoint. Like We are one church that meets across two campuses. And as a result, we really share a lot of things together. One of the things that we share is leadership. So we're an elder-led church meaning that myself as an elder here on this campus and several other folks, including the campus pastor, the senior pastor, Adam Robinson, over at Mount Laurel, there's, there's a group of folks that are elders for our church, and our goal is to shepherd and lead this church together. Quite often, there are times and opportunities for folks that are elders to roll off uh, and complete their service and new folks to come on, and we're in a season here in the life of our church at Double Oak Chelsea where myself, John Herring, our executive pastor, and our leadership team are seeking to raise up new elders for our church campus. And as we do that, our brothers and sisters over at Mount Laurel are doing the same thing. I want to share with you this morning something that we're sharing not only at Mount Laurel, but here at Chelsea as well. We uh, want to share this across both campuses. Uh, there's a gentleman named Michael Bowles. There's his beautiful picture. Um, we want you, uh, not just the folks at Mount Laurel, but, but they want us, all of us, as one church together to begin prayerfully considering him as an elder nominee. Now, he will really technically just be at the Mount Laurel campus, but because we're all one church and in this thing together, he will be part of the leadership that will help us walk in the future of our church. So this morning, we've got the opportunity, number one, uh, to pray for Michael and Donna, his wonderful, lovely family, known them for years, man of great character, loves the Lord, awesome guy. Um, we have the opportunity to pray for him this morning in this role, but we also have the opportunity to pray for us that God would continue to grow us, strengthen us, and bring us to the place where we raise up new elders, new leaders here at this church that can help shepherd us and help us be those people that we long to be, people of pursuit, who understand and know our purpose, who are living intentionally, and who truly are those who are living in community together. Amen? So let's pray this morning for these two things in our time of family prayer. Number one, uh, the, for, for Michael Bowles uh, and considering him as an elder nominee uh, at, at Mount Laurel, but across both of our campuses. And then second, for the opportunity for God to strengthen and raise and continually grow us new leadership here on our campus. Okay? If you will, bow your heads and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful uh, for saints, brothers and sisters who walk with you, who know you, who encourage us and cause us to see you and to glorify you. Father, Michael Bowles is one of those people, and so 
Father, as, as your church, as we are considering him as an elder nominee, Father, I just I pray a couple of things very specifically. Number one, uh, that he would just be open and attentive to your spirit, that he would continually seek to trust you and your will and what you would call him to do with regard to leadership in the church. And second, that you would give us an encouragement and a confidence about his ability, his character, and the way in which he can lead. Obviously, Lord, we're just early in this process, but I just pray that you'll continue to guide each step. Second, Father, you know our need for continued leadership and growth here on this campus. I pray, Father, that you, even now, in ways that we don't even see, will continue to do the work of raising up new leaders on our behalf so that we can shepherd and care for this body well, faithfully to your glory, so that you may be known in Chelsea and throughout this area. Pray these things in the in your son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15, but I want to start uh, by asking you a question. And questions are unique things because we can ask a question and we can say words and maybe perhaps mean something different. The first question I have for you this morning is this What do I have to give? As we move into a series and we're talking about a theology of giving and what it means to give, and as Drew mentioned, in multiple ways, I think this is like the natural question that we typically tend to ask. What do I have to give? That's a question we ask every day in every arena of our life. What do we have to give? Right? Because I have to give a lot more at Chick-fil-A than I used to. Right? There are things that we look at and there's naturally a cost associated with there's something that we have to give. It's a prudent question. It's not a bad question to ask. There's another question that I think is more important, and it's this. It looks like the same question, but it's different. The different meaning behind this one is this. What do I have? What do I have to be able to give? What do I have to give? We're going to talk about money, and that can be uncomfortable for some of us. And if we're honest, it's probably at least a little bit uncomfortable for all of us, right? Money is a very personal thing. But as a part of the Christian faith, we need to understand that money's really really important to talk about. Not just personally and not just within the context of our family or our budget or maybe with our financial advisor, but actually together. I want to share with you a few things about money from the Bible. As we get into a series about what we have to give, there's around 2,000 verses in the Bible that deal with money. Just from a sheer volume standpoint, it's obvious that money is important. Second, 11 of Jesus' 39 parables dealt specifically, directly with money. So Jesus is concerned with money. Third, there's financial language that runs rampant throughout all of the Bible. Even, even Paul's language to, in, in, uh, in the book of Romans is, is about wages, and it's about earning. You find that throughout really a number of writings in the epistles. There is this really big emphasis 
on money. Why? It's how we relate to life every day. We're figuring out what we have to give for stuff, what things cost, right? It's a normal thing to deal with currency and the exchange of good and services. Jesus knows this. But I want to share something very direct and very clear with you this morning. Because you might be saying, all right, well, there's a punchline coming. And this guy, although he walked up there and seemed nice enough, now is going to ask for something from me later. And you might have that question in your head right now, what do I have to give? And that might be the place from which it's coming. But I want to share with you very clearly and with myself this deep truth. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. He created everything, absolutely everything, by his word. He doesn't need your money, but he wants your heart. He wants your heart. You might say, well, those are kind of two different things, right? God God not needing my money and God wanting my heart. What, what in the world do those two things like really have to do with each other? Well, Jesus knows how often we can conflate the security, the importance of, and the love of money with our love for him. Before we get into 2 Corinthians, I want to share with you a quick story. Just If I was to give you like the 90-second elevator speech, just what is the point of this passage of Scripture? This is Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. You might have a heading in your Bible if you were to turn there and see maybe something that says something like this, uh, the story of the rich young ruler. And this is describing Jesus. This is what Mark's Gospel said. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? You know what he's asking? What do I have to give to get eternal life? What do I have to give? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And look into the latter portion of this passage. He said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I want you to look at those last five words. For he had great possessions. There's something beautiful about the way Mark describes with this final phrase exactly what's happening in the heart of this passage. Because this is, one of the, I think, one of the most beautiful and simple teachings about money and about us. It says... For he had great possessions. But you know what the moral of the story, you know what the reality is? You know what Jesus is really showing to us and revealing to us as we read these words? It wasn't so much that he had great possessions. Those great possessions had him. They had him. 
they possessed him. His heart was not just indebted to, it was tied to, it was inextricably bound up with what he had. And I'm so thankful for Drew's leadership and his love for us this morning because this is what we're going to walk through today and, and thinking through and seeing is that Jesus is better. He's better than anything you have. He's absolutely better. Three big questions that we're going to see today as we look through 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. Number one is this. What does giving do? What does giving do? Like, okay, we're called to give. I think everybody walked in the room this morning understanding that. What does giving really do? What does the Bible tell me that giving accomplishes? Second, in addition to that, how are we called to give? How are we called to give? Another way to frame that might be, well, what what does that look like? What does it look like to, to give? Right? Is this 10%? Is it another number? What does it look like to give? We're going to see that in the text today as well. Third and finally, another really important question to help us get into giving, and the heart of it is this. Why? Why do we give? What is the core basis? What is the motivation? Not just, not just the purposeful, practical thing, but like what, what is the thing that would cause us from an emotional place? Like why would we give? We all have things that we give to. A number of us probably give to lots of different charities, lots of things that we're passionate about, a number of ministries, all those types of things. Why do we give to those things? Today we're going to talk about why we're called to give to the Lord and to the ministries of the church. If you will, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 6 through 15 together. And in stark opposition to last week, we're going to try to get on time, out of here on time today. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15 says this, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Number one, 
before we get into what giving does, I think it'd be helpful to really set a context for this set of verses. If you look in the first five verses that precede these, in the beginning of chapter 9, you see this talk about the Macedonians and what Paul is doing at this portion of his letter in 2 Corinthians and what he's telling the people in Corinth. He's reminding them and he's actually really coming to them to, in some sense, kind of collect on what they've promised. You see, the church at Corinth recognized and saw that through Paul and others, they came to this awareness that the church in Jerusalem was really lacking financially. They had a ton of needs, basic physical needs, all kinds of emotional and spiritual needs that were not being able to be met because they were living in poverty. They needed money. And so Paul gets the word out, and there are a number of folks who want to come and help support these churches in Jerusalem. The church at Corinth is one. So he's reminding them, ultimately, that they've said they would give to these these churches and these groups of people in Jerusalem who have some very specific needs. But in verses 1 through 5, he referenced this other group called the Macedonians, and they're a group of people who are also giving to the churches in Jerusalem. But there's something unique about them that's very different from those at Corinth, and it's this. They are giving out of extreme poverty. Those Macedonians are not wealthy, really like the folks at Corinth are. Paul's calling on a group of people who are stable and who largely have more than they need to come and give, and he wants to give them this example of, hey, there's this other group, these folks that are giving out of their poverty. Here's the unique thing. It's not just that the people in Macedonia are giving out of their poverty. There is a reason that they are poor. You know what that reason is? They have been persecuted and attacked by those in the Greco-Roman world and the society that surrounds them. So these aren't people that are just, they are poor, but they're seeking to give. They're people who have been made poor by persecution and have said, you know what, even, even because of all that and even through that, we want to give all the more. We want to give more to the needs of those who are experiencing the pain and the heartaches and the trials and the persecution that we've walked through as people have come against us as a church because we've seen what God can do. So that's the background. That's the setting for what Paul's writing here in verses 6 through 15. And he's describing to these at Corinth that, hey, you said you would give, and I want to urge you to give. And in the middle of this, we get the answer to these three massive questions that have implications for us day in and day out. People just like you and me about what it looks like to give. The first question we have is this, what happens when we give? What's the result of giving? Look down at verses 12 through 14, and you get this beautiful picture. And I think what's so helpful here is it's a pretty linear understanding of what exactly happens when we give. And I don't just mean like, like where's the money trail? Where did our giving go? So our family gave to the church this month. What's the particular thing that happened? We're transparent. We can help you. We can show you. We'll open the budget, all that kind of stuff. But really the core is to find out, okay, what happens as a result of this giving? What is the chief thing that giving does? What is its purpose? Look at verses 12 through 14. It says, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, 
but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. So two very big things are happening that we get to understand that you and I get to take part in as we give to the ministries of the church. Number one is this, it meets the needs of the saints. You know, one of the most beautiful things that I've had a part of in in my role in, in this job and what I've been able to see in the life of this church is the way that we've been able to give and meet needs throughout the community. There are people who have had not just their power bill paid or food for this week taken care of, but people that we've been able to help over a long period of time and meet very significant needs. All kinds of ministries that are not just here in Chelsea, but throughout Shelby County and beyond throughout this state and other places where we're impacting lives consistently through your gifts, through your offerings, through what we're doing as a church. That happens as a result of our giving. The needs of the saints are met. And I do mean this truly across three very specific realms. One, physically, people are taking care of physically. There's food and shelter and clothing that our giving helps provide others in benevolent ways. Second, people are emotionally connected to one another and discipled and grown up in the faith and spiritually strengthened. All of those things are happening as a result of our giving. So the point of giving is so that the needs of the saints would be met, but also this, look at this. But it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Giving results in thanks and praise to God. And that might sound like the simplest thing, and that might sound even to you like a very little thing. It might sound like a trivial thing, but you understand even as we walked through this series or up into the last series when we were talking together about who we are and using that framework from 1 Peter chapter 2, understanding that, that we belong to God, that we're His, that we once were not a people, but now we're a people. And third and finally, our life is meant to glorify God. And when God is thanked and God is glorified, God is known and people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Your giving does that. When people see the body of believers caring for one another, meeting one another's needs, and God being praised, we get this picture of what giving can really do. It results in God being glorified in our midst and to others that are outside of this place. Look at what verse 13 says. By approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and others. Notice the unique flow of what this looks like. God is praised as his people give But what are they giving out of? Their generosity is a direct result of their confession of the gospel of Christ. And it's really important that we don't get the order mixed up here. What Paul's illustrating and what the Spirit is seeking to teach us through the word is this. Is that as we confess the gospel, this is what we come to discover. That Jesus is better. That my sin, not in part, but the actual whole of my sin, has been nailed to the cross. If that is true, take everything I got. It just doesn't matter. There is nothing that compares to that. The gospel 
changes us in such a way where we recognize that God considered, and I love this language, that God considered our, our pitiful, sinful estate, right? Like we think about an estate. You ever Googled like how much somebody's worth? You ever Googled somebody's net worth? I, don't, I wouldn't say, like, do it with your time this afternoon, right? Like, that's, I'm not pushing you to do that. But it's a very interesting thing. I probably can't Google yours, and you probably can't Google mine, right? But you have an estate. Like, in, in the world's eyes, you're worth something. There is a number. You know the most beautiful thing? The first part's bad news, and it's heartbreaking. And it's that I have no righteousness of my own. My estate, spiritually, is worth zero. Bankrupt. I got nothing. Christ considered my estate. And the God who loved me did not hold back his only son. So that I might have life with him and all the riches, all the beauty, everything that comes with it. Everything. It's all mine. Every spiritual gift is all mine. I think of it this way a lot. Like We've got these little kids at our house. And it's the cutest and it's the funnest thing when their friend says, I'm going to Millie's house. Or I'm going to Clover's house. I want to make... I mean, you probably know this, but I, I just, for the record, like Millie has no idea what a mortgage is. <laughs> Neither does Clover. I haven't asked, but I've also never been offered a penny towards it from those, right? <laughs> but you know whose house that is? That's Millie's house. That's Clover's house. Why? Because everything that I have is theirs. There's a couple guitars and some vinyl records we're debating, but you understand that the premise is that anything that's mine is theirs. That's how it is with us and our Savior. And when we confess that, this thing happens where we begin to see, in light of that, man, I want to be generous. I want to give to others. I want people to experience that. You look at what happens here, the generosity of your contribution for them and all the others. There's this direct result. It says, while they long for you and pray for you. So as we give, we become connected in a deep way to one another. God knits us together and draws us together as we meet one another's needs and he is glorified. And then this, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, we get to experience grace. This is what giving does. It meets the needs of others. It results in God being glorified. It connects us together and it causes us to experience grace. Second, how are we called to give or what does it look like to give? Now this in in so many ways is one of the most beautiful and challenging and just not easy and faith-requiring aspects of what it means to be a believer. Look at verse 7, and you see this. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You might have the question this morning, what do I have to give? What do I have to give? 
You might have grown up in a world where you thought very, it was just plain and simple and that everybody knew it. You might even think this morning, like, I thought everybody knew it. We give 10%. That's what we give. Okay, well, is it gross? 10% gross? Is it 10% net? Is it 10% of all your money? Is it 10% of your time? Is it 10% of your abilities? Is it, are, are, we, are, we do, are we doing that? Is that what it looks like to give? We're going to talk in a few weeks and over the course of several weeks about the real ramifications and specifics of what that possibly can look like. But I want to present to you and encourage you to see that as we look at the canon of God's word and giving throughout the entire context of the scriptures, this is really the theme. It's gracious or cheerful giving. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Now, this is the first component. Number one, this looks like a very individual thing. This doesn't look like there's some sort of set number that we're all supposed to give. Like, straight from God's words, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. But it's also really important for us to understand what those words mean. Because I would tell you that if I just read without any context of what, what this word in its original origin means, deciding just sounds like making a decision. I'll just make a decision in my heart. That word decided there really means to seek counsel. It means to contemplate and to think through specifically this with the help of another. So what is Paul saying here? What's the core of this? The core of this first phrase is this. What does it look like to give? It looks like giving as we ask God what he calls us to give. As we decide, as we make a decision once we think through what it looks like to really give as he is calling us to give. Second, he kind of qualifies it in this way, not reluctantly. So he's saying, don't, don't like, give what you're really holding back. Don't do that. He also said, don't give under compulsion. He's saying, don't, don't give because somebody's making you feel like you ought to give. No, don't do that. Don't give out of guilt. Why, why is he saying these things? He wants to make really clear that he's not leveling a spiritual tax on them. That's not the goal here at all. He says God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. What does he mean by that? Well, you've probably heard maybe at some time in your life or experienced preaching or teaching on this subject, and specifically this verse, that that word cheerful comes from a root word that means hilarious. And that's true. There's this real sense in which it comes from this, this, uh, this kind of world of word associations with a really happy, a really joyous, a really jovial life. But it doesn't mean reckless. It doesn't mean without abandon. This doesn't mean like foolishly. But it means desirously. Like I want to give this. I want to give this. And you might say, look, I, I don't even know how to get to the place where I want to give this. And that's where we got to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. We have to keep telling ourselves and keep explaining and reminding ourselves how good God is that he would come and save you and he would save me. And as we continue to hear the gospel preach that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we weren't like treading water. 
We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God gave his son Jesus for us. Then we will see that we have all life in him, all joy, all peace, all hope, all security in him. And the things of this world, the things that have a tendency to possess us, will start to grow strangely dim in the light of the good news of Jesus Christ. All right, third question is this. Why do we give? Why do we give? Verse 15 says this, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And like Paul often does, he's describing two very specific things in this moment. Two very specific things. is the, the, the language, the antecedent, the word structure. It's pointing back to two very specific things. Number one is this. He's thanking God for the gift of giving. He's saying, God, only you could have thought of this. That, that everything happens, that people begin to behold more and possess more and enjoy more when they give more. You go back into verse 6 of this passage, and he talks about sowing sparingly and reaping sparingly. The church at Corinth, they, lived in, they were in a city, but it was a very agricultural, agrarian area. So all of these people were familiar with seeds. They were familiar with plants. And this is what they knew. If you throw out one seed, you get what? One plant. You throw out a bunch of seeds, what do you get? A bunch of plants. So he's using this language to say, this is how God has designed this. We're meant to be givers. We give and we give and we give. Because ultimately, he's the one working through us. He's the one that continually provides. And the more that we give, the more he provides. The second thing Paul is saying when he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, is he's simply describing Jesus Christ, who is the gift of all gifts. God has given us life through his son. I want to share with you a series of verses to help you understand that God is giver. That God is giver. Look at Psalm 112, verse 9. This is the, the passage that's referenced here within the context of 2 Corinthians 9. It says this, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. What does that mean? There's this direct connection in God's word between caring and giving and righteousness. God's righteousness is exemplified in his caring and his giving. And he's given to you and me. Our poor estate, he has given to us in his son Jesus. Brian mentioned it this morning, James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What does that mean? Everything that we have, every gift, it comes from him. And you might be the most stoic person in this room and say, listen, I've, I've, I'm a self-made man or woman, and I've worked myself you know, from the ground up, and I, nobody has done anything for me. I've earned it all myself. And I would say, that is incredible. The one question I would ask you is, did you buy your breath? Every morning, you and I wake up with breath in our lungs that we didn't earn. With a heart that's beating that we didn't create. Every single good and perfect gift is from Him. God is giver. 
Look at Romans 6.23, and you see some of this financial language come to bear. Paul, in describing what happens as a result of our sin and how it separates us from God, he says, I want to explain it to you in this way. The wages of sin is death. So what you earn, the return on sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is giver. This is who he is. He has given us everything. He's given us life in Jesus. And probably like the, the penultimate verse in all of Scripture, the verse that perhaps you heard first or learned first or was given to you is, hey, this is the core of our faith. This is what it's all based around. Is nothing but giving language. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world... This is the result of his love. This is the action that comes from him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God seeks to give us life in Jesus. Why? Because he's giver. From the garden to now, he's done nothing but give. All of it's a gift. Everything is a gift. And that has some implications for you and I. That means if I'm supposed to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus, if I'm supposed to not just live like Jesus in the things that I do, but, but actually have the heart of Jesus, then I'm meant to be a giver. That's who we are. We've been talking for weeks and weeks about pursuit, about this being the vision, the theme of who we want to be as a church and where we're headed. The the goal of pursuit and perhaps the definition of it is this, that we would know our purpose, that we would live intentionally, and that we would do so in community. That that would be what life looks like. So here's the question for us this morning. How are we people of pursuit relative to giving? How are we people of pursuit with regard to giving? Because if this is our purpose... If our purpose is to know God and to be transformed and make disciples, we've got to ask these questions of ourselves. Number one, am I experiencing the grace of God in giving? Am I, am I giving? Second, with regard to being transformed, am I listening to God about what to do with my money? Right? And I put quotes around my because the reality is the earth and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Whatever we have has merely been entrusted to us. Are we asking God what to do with what we have? Are we asking him that question? And are we listening to what he says? Third, if we know our purpose is to make disciples, are we giving from a heart of with the intent to make disciples, to see people come to know Jesus and be baptized? What we're going to experience this morning in just a few moments, somebody to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Are we giving to that ministry? Because that's our purpose. A couple of questions around intentionality. Do we think about giving intentionally, thoughtfully to the ministries of this church? Do we just write a check because we know that's what we're supposed to do? Or are we thinking through, man, I want to give because of what I've seen. I want to give because of what God is doing in my life and how I'm growing and being transformed by the Spirit. I want to give for that reason. And then another question. You want to talk about intentionality? 
have we decided in our heart to give? And again, I don't just mean like we made a decision, but we're intentionally seeking out what God is calling us to give. Third and finally, do I see my gift as God's plan for the community of this church and the church? Because this is what this passage illustrates, that giving is for the needs of the saints so that God is glorified, that thanks and praise go to God. People become connected as they develop this heart for one another. I got to, I, I guess, it was yesterday, day before yesterday, somebody in this church who I deeply love, who's a, a mentor and a friend to me, texted me at one in the morning and said, the Lord just woke him up and he prayed for me and my family. He prayed for me. This guy's got a lot on his plate and there's way more important stuff in his life to do than pray for me. What he did was he woke up and he prayed. Why? Because I'm connected to him. We're brothers in the faith. This sounds so strange, but you know how that happened? You know the, 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 the way in which this all came about? Because people gave. They gave to the ministries of the church so that people can form and develop relationships like this and love and care for one another and pray for one another and long for one another. And giving is God's plan for us as a church in this community. Our worship team is going to come and we're going to sing as we close here in a moment. But I want to genuinely ask you to ask yourself these questions today. And I get it. Like, I get it. Like, you ought to see it from this side. It ain't tons of fun either, all right? I can sense the body language and the tension and the frustration and the, and, and the contemplative thought. And, man, like, hey, Michael, do you have any idea how expensive life is? I do. I know. Everything's more expensive. Everything's harder. God is calling us to give. And I want to be very clear and very specific and honest and upfront with you. This is not a fundraiser. This is not a goal to get more money for the church. The goal is faithfulness. The goal is that we would live in pursuit of God together. And that means we obey and we do what his word is calling us to do. Amen? And here's the crazy thing. All our giving does is benefit us. God has worked this so that you sow bountifully, you're just going to reap bountifully. Now, I also want to make sure you understand this is not prosperity in some sense. God does not promise us like, okay, well, I'm going to give, so he's going to give me more. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give this much, and now next time I'm going to have the bigger house or the bigger car or the nicer clothes or the better shoes or whatever the thing is. By no means we will have trouble in this world is what Jesus promises us. But this is God's plan and design for his community so that he's glorified. Amen? Week after week after week, it's not going to last that long, but for the next several weeks, we're going to talk about money and what it looks like, how we can give faithfully so that God is glorified and that the saints are taken care of and that we get to proclaim to the world that Christ is king. I'm excited to be on this ride with you and to be a part of of learning what it means to trust in Jesus more deeply as we pursue him. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father.
you have given us absolutely everything in Jesus Christ. We once were not a people, Father, we once were so poor, spiritually bankrupt, we had no things, Father, but you have given us life and hope in Jesus, and for that we are thankful. God, would you cause us to be transformed, to have hearts that long to give, hearts that look like yours, giving freely, all because of love. We pray these things in the name of your son Jesus, who you gave for us. Amen.